This week on The Other Side Australia, Joe Biden in deep water as talk of possible impeachment over his family's international business dealings mount. Self-appointed Aussie fact police show their political bias as the screws tighten further on free speech. And when does sex education become sex promotion? We explore the aftermath of the controversy over that book. G'day and welcome to episode 216 of The Other Side Australia for the weekend, commencing Friday the 28th of July, 2023. I'm Damien Curry. Before we get into tonight's show, just a reminder to our viewers in Brisbane that we will be hosting our first breakfast event with the Australian Institute for Progress on Tuesday morning. That's August the 1st because it's Emancipation Day. If you'd like to join us, point your phone's camera at this QR code on your screen now and it'll take you to the site to buy tickets or you can just head to aip.asn.au aip.asn.au or search up the Australian Institute for Progress and join us for breakfast on August 1. Professor Nigel Bigar will be our guest. Professor Bigar is Regius Professor at the University of Oxford and in 2017 he began the Oxford Project Ethics and Empire which critiques the purely negative view of empires and colonialism that so many of us are taught to believe in today. And he argues that colonies and empire were in fact morally mixed. He'll be joining me via Zoom for the breakfast and there'll be audience Q&A for everyone in the rest of Australia. I'll be interviewing Professor Big R for our Tuesday interview show on Tuesday night. So make sure you join us here on ADH TV for that. I'll be speaking to the good professor specifically about Emancipation Day, which commemorates the British Parliament's abolition of slavery and the subsequent enforcement of that around the world. But Nigel Bigart spoke to former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, John Anderson, on his podcast last week about the question of empire and colonialism. Whether we're talking about Australia or New Zealand or uh, Canada, um, those are um, three of the most liberal, most prosperous societies in the world. Um, and uh, they all grew out of, of uh, colonies and they have all sought with, with greater or lesser success to integrate um, Aboriginal native peoples into society um, uh, so that they can enjoy the benefits of, of um, full benefits of citizenship like, like everyone else. Uh, there is something to be said for the British Empire insofar as, uh, for example, it, it, it did uh, suppress constant uh, warfare between native peoples. It, it, it imposed an overarching order um, and ended uh, a debilitating uh, warfare between peoples. Um, it um, integrated uh, very local economies into a global economy, which increased prosperity. And then it, it built liberal institutions, which eventually um, 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 native Aboriginal people, peoples were able to take a full part in. I, mean, I, th I think the first Maori MPs members of parliament uh, were to be found in the 1860s. The, the ideal was to take these peoples and to enable them to take a full part in, in, the, the, in, the, in the colonial society that was being built. It took a long time and, and um, it took a lot of adjustment and it's still in, in process, I guess, um, but it's been a success. And I think a lot of Aboriginal native peoples would, would um, acknowledge that. That's Professor Nigel Bigar of Oxford University speaking with former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, John Anderson, on his podcast last week. As I mentioned, Professor Bigar will be joining me for the Other Side interviews, uh, which will be uh, airing, of course, on Tuesday night right here on ADH TV, as usual, at around about 6 p.m. That's August the 1st, uh, which is Emancipation Day. And I'll be doing a deeper dive with Nigel, more specifically around the abolition of slavery by the British which is what Emancipation Day is all about. And as I said, if you're in Brisbane, please join us for our Emancipation Day breakfast. The QR code on your screen now is a link to where you can get tickets. Just point your phone cameras at it or, uh, or go to aip.asn.au for tickets and support the AIP, which is a not-for-profit organisation aiming to promote liberal ideas and thought across our great country.
It's been a huge week in the United States with new information coming to light about the first family and allegations of corruption. The story was broken by Australian journalist Miranda Devine in the New York Post, the same newspaper and reporter who broke the Hunter Biden laptop story that the rest of the media ignored and social media suppressed prior to the 2020 presidential elections. On Sunday, the newspaper published a story telling how Hunter would dial his father into meetings with his business partners overseas while his father was vice president of the United States under Obama. The claims are reportedly expected to be made publicly by Hunter's ex-mate, Devin Archer, who's scheduled to testify to a congressional committee. The really concerning bit about all this is this. The New York Post reports that one of these meetings where Vice President Biden was dialed in by Hunter took place in Dubai late one December evening in 2015 after a board meeting of the Ukrainian energy company Burisma. Ah yes, the Ukrainian energy company Burisma. That's the mob who were paying Hunter a million US dollars a year to be a director on their board despite Hunter having no experience in the energy sector whatsoever. Devon Archer was also a director of Burisma. Amazing. And the Post says that he is expected to testify that after dinner with the Burisma board, he and Hunter went to another hotel in Dubai for a drink and got a call from a top Burisma executive saying that Burisma's owner, Mikola Zlochevsky, needed to speak to Hunter urgently. Soon afterward, the New York Post report says the two Ukrainians showed up and the exec asked Hunter, can you ring your dad? Hunter then called his father, put him on speaker, placed the phone on the table and introduced the Ukrainians to Joe Biden by name as Nikolai and Vadim. He also said words to the effect that the Burisma bigwigs need our support. Now, all of this sounds sort of bad, but it's even worse. The context is this. Three days after the speakerphone call, Joe Biden, who was Obama's point man for Ukraine, was due to fly to Kiev to address the Ukrainian parliament about the evils of corruption and kleptocracy. A few months earlier, the US ambassador had given a speech about corruption and mentioned the Burisma owner, Zlochevsky, by name. So the thinking is maybe this was why he was freaked out and why he wanted to speak to Biden before his speech. Please don't mention me by name. Now, why does that matter, apart from the obvious inappropriateness and conflict of interest? Well, because back then, the man who was the Ukrainian prosecutor general, Viktor Shokin, was investigating Burisma for corruption, and he was hitting the company really hard. But a month later, Shokin was fired after Joe Biden threatened to withhold a billion dollars in US aid to Ukraine if he wasn't fired. Let me just repeat that because it's the crux of the whole thing. So Shokin, the Ukrainian special prosecutor, was investigating Zlochevsky, the guy who owned the energy company Burisma, for corruption. Hunter Biden was strangely a director on the Burisma board, being paid a million bucks a year. And then Joe Biden had Shokin, the investigator, fired by threatening to withhold a billion dollars in US aid to Ukraine if he wasn't fired. Wow. Biden even bragged about it publicly on stage at an event right after. I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had, they were walking out to the press conference, and I said, no, I said, I'm not going to, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours. I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. Now, none of this part is actually new. We knew all of this, and we reported on it before the 2020 presidential election on this show in 2020. Now, Biden's story was that the prosecutor himself was corrupt and was unjustly going after the Burisma founder. But even if that was the case, it doesn't explain Hunter's involvement and the board position. But nobody really cared about all this back then, even though it was known. 
almost everyone else in the Aussie media and 90% of the US media was too busy hating Donald Trump and making sure that Biden would become president. They didn't bother reporting on this situation. Then the Democrats did the thing that left-wing political people always do. They accused their opposition of something kind of similar to confuse everybody. Remember the telephone call between Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky? when Trump asked Zelensky to investigate the Biden Burisma thing, and then the Democrats freaked out and screamed, impeach Trump. And they did for allegedly connecting that Burisma investigation request to ongoing military aid. That was the quid pro quo that everyone was talking about. Remember that? And Trump said, hang on a minute. It was a perfect call, a perfect call. Uh, There was no quid pro quo. And to people actually paying attention at the time, The Democrats impeachment calls and reaction to that phone call did seem a little bit over the top. But just like an Italian national soccer player rolling on the ground in shock, mock pain to throw off the referee, it worked. And the media awarded a penalty against Trump. The mainstream media was just too busy trying to make Trump look like the bad guy that they forgot to question the Biden situation. And then, Hunter's laptop turned up with emails on it about money being paid to the big guy. And the mainstream media ignored that. But Fox News and Tucker Carlson and the New York Post kept pushing. And everyone laughed and said, I ignore those cookers. It's the Murdoch media. Evil Murdoch. Well, thank God for the Murdoch media in this particular case, because without them, there would have been nothing reported. Then Twitter banned the New York Post reporting on it. I mean, really, it it was awful. It's actually fair to say that the 2020 election should probably be rerun with a fully informed public. But oh no, you can't suggest for a second that the election was stolen or invalid, then then you'll get called a right-wing nutjob conspiracy theory cooker again. Right, if you think this is all nuts, it actually is. And what's really scary is the fact that once again, the mainstream media, as if they have any credibility left, are trying to ignore the story again. Well, this this time though, it might just be too hard. Donald Trump did a town hall with Fox News' Sean Hannity this week and addressed the Biden issue. Joe Biden said to this country repeatedly during your 2020 election that he never once spoke with his son, Hunter, about his foreign business dealings. Now, Then we have Joe on tape bragging that he leveraged one billion taxpayer dollars to get a prosecutor fired in Ukraine. Right. Okay. And as a result, son of a B, they fired him. And then Hunter continued to get paid. Hunter goes on Good Morning America. I have no experience in oil, gas, energy, or Ukraine. Why are they paying you all that money? He actually said, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) a 50-year-old man. Are Are they compromised? I think no question about it. We have a compromised president. China gives him millions of dollars. If he's given Biden millions of dollars, he's compromised. Now, that's only the stuff they found. There's a lot of other things, and there'll be some things that you never find, but there's a lot of other things. So he's getting millions of dollars illegally from China. And then you say, hey, they impeached me over a phone call that was perfect. Why aren't they impeaching Biden for receiving tens of millions of dollars? Why isn't he under impeachment? good question. And the current Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, remember America doesn't have a Prime Minister, the President runs the executive government there. The Speaker is the leader of the majority party in the House of Representatives, which is kind of like our Prime Minister, but without the executive power. So the Republicans now control the House and Kevin McCarthy, a Republican, is their leader, so he's the Speaker. He's now come out and said that an impeachment investigation should be opened into President Biden following the House committee hearings in which these allegations were aired. He said, this is rising to the level of impeachment inquiry, which provides Congress the strongest power to get the rest of the knowledge and information needed. So this could get very, very big. We'll keep you across it, even if the mainstream Australian media ignores it. When we discover all of this, we're gonna discover that the Biden family is a criminal family, and and the the focus should not be on Hunter. Hunter was the bag man. I mean, nobody was paying Hunter Biden. He was just the guy they gave cash to for his father. 
And that was Newt Gingrich, the former Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives on Fox News. One of the few Liberal Party politicians with any guts to stand up to the left and stand up for traditional Liberal values these days is South Australian Senator Alec Antic. He wrote an interesting insight piece for The Spectator magazine this week in which he says, quote, it would be impossible for me to recount the number of times that salt of the earth people running small businesses, volunteering in their communities and raising families have thanked me for defending traditional liberal values. The forgotten people, to borrow Sir Robert Menzies' famous phrase, are tired of being overlooked and want to see politics that invests in the next generation of Australians and fights the reckless policies of the left which are driving this nation into the ground. He's spot on. And it beggars belief that no political party of note in this country can adequately seize this gaping hole in the market and serve these millions of Australians craving some kind of solid political representation. Senator Antic writes, I firmly believe there is no universe in which mandatory vaccinations, especially with treatments lacking long-term safety data, are consistent with liberal values. But it isn't just vaccine mandates that have hurt Australians, he says. People are fed up with the drift of politics in general. They are tired of alarmist rhetoric about climate change and its endless failed predictions, not to mention the way that net zero policies are accelerating the current cost of living crisis. They are tired of the suggestion that Australia's history is entirely negative and that they are not allowed to be grateful for their heritage. They are tired of their children being exposed to highly sexualized material and of the undermining of the traditional nuclear family without which society cannot function, let alone flourish. Dissenting from the identity politics narrative of the political and cultural elites gets one labeled all kinds of isms and phobias. And this has kept normal people, who hardly have time for such nonsense, politically disengaged. Much like these isms and phobias, Senator Antic writes, the label far right is one that leftists use to denigrate their opponents to avoid the hard work of formulating an argument and engaging in reasonable, respectful debate. You don't support the voice, you must be a racist. You don't support net zero, you must be a climate denier. Well, the forgotten people who know that the insults of the left are the last resort of those who lack good arguments have had enough, he says. Those who hold the genuine liberal values of defending the nuclear family, minimising bureaucracy, incentivising private innovation and upholding freedom of speech are getting involved in the machinery of politics as is their right in a liberal democracy. Far from being far right, my beliefs, Senator Antic says, are reflected in the fundamental principles of the party Menzies founded. That is why I joined the Liberal Party and that is why I am a Liberal. There is nothing far right about that. Good on you, Senator Alec Antic. The Liberal Party could do with a few hundred more of you and a few hundred less of those who know how to follow opinion polling only rather than leading and shaping opinion and who have let Australia slide to the left by leaving Labor and the Greens virtually unchallenged in most national issue debates. That's Senator Alec Antic from South Australia. Now, I deliberately avoided this story on last week's show because it broke quite late last week and I sincerely thought it and hoped that it would blow over and that it would be widely covered elsewhere. But I dug a little deeper and, uh, wow, did I get a shock. So you're probably well aware of the story by now. Big W Department Store took the book called Welcome to Sex off its shelves after complaints that it was too graphic and inappropriately aimed at kids who were way too young for its contents. Now, I knew that modern sex education was different to the biology approach that they took when I was a kid, but I had no idea what many Australians now consider to be totally within the bounds of normal in terms of what we teach young teenagers about sex. And once again, I felt like a fringe outsider in my own country. 
Thankfully, there are a lot of people who agree with me, but it's also very clear that we are not in the majority. Big W took the book off the shelves. They still sell it online, but they took it off the shelves not because they thought it was the right thing to do. Oh no. They took it off the shelves because their staff were copying abuse from outraged customers. Who knows how true that claim is. Here's Yumi Steins, one of the authors, speaking to Channel 10's The Project Show. Uh, and I know you're a parent as well, and I'm sure at some stage I am going to need to have the birds and bees chat uh, with my beautiful daughter. How did you go about that chat with your kids? Well, Woody, the whole thing with the chat is it's not a chat. It's an ongoing conversation. Mm. And nobody knows your kids better than you and your partner if you're lucky enough to have one. So what you want to do is to be continually calibrating and recalibrating the information that you give them based on what they're ready to hear about. And mm. they will let you know. They'll ask the questions. They'll dig deeper if there's something they don't understand but they want to know more. And in the case of my own kids who are now 21 and 9, 19. If they don't want to continue, they'll be like, yuck, stop, <laughs> stop talking. Okay, that's Yumi Steins on the project this week. Now, if this was the kind of advice in this book, it'd be fine. And there's a lot of good advice in it for older teens, especially around not being pressured into sex and going at your own pace. But this book is something very, very different. And I actually have a problem with it on two related but very different levels. Firstly, it's super graphic. On some websites, it's marketed as being for kids 14 plus. I think these sex concepts go way beyond what any 14 year old needs to know, and I think 16 might be a stretch too. Reportedly, Yumi Stein said she would be comfortable if an eight year old skimmed the pages, and others have said the book is suitable for ages 10 to 12. Let's be damn clear about this, it isn't. I lean classical liberal, not conservative socially. I believe what consenting adults want to do in the privacy of their own home is nobody's business. But when it comes to kids, I have a very, very different view. And this stuff is completely inappropriate for kids. We all, as adults in this society, have a duty of care to protect childhood innocence. Now, if you have kids in the room, Skip ahead a couple of minutes, because I think we need to show you what is actually in this book. Here is the original one minute video on Instagram, viaNews.com, from the campaigner who first raised the concerns. Welcome to Sex, a book sold at Big W and marketed towards your children. And it says so on the very first page, whether you're an apprehensive 11 year old, Size matters, talking about penis size. Scissoring, complete with illustrations. The low down on anal sex. Fingering. How do you finger someone? Again, complete with illustrations. Hand jobs. Oral sex. Oral sex on a penis. The virginity myth, and as it says there, I think virginity is such an outdated concept, downplaying virginity, porn, and of course, sexual and gender identities. They couldn't leave that one out. I'm 13 and I'm confused about my sexuality. How can anyone think they're not coming after the children after seeing books like this for sale openly in Big W? Welcome to sex, sold at Big W and marketed towards your children. Yeah, it's certainly full-on stuff, not appropriate for under-16s in my view, but apart from the graphic stuff, um, and I slightly disagree with some of the things that that person, uh, that campaigner said there, I do think it's important for kids to know about porn and be informed about the dangers of it um, and the inappropriateness of it, uh, and also lots of other things in that book are okay, but the graphic stuff isn't. And apart from the graphic stuff, there is a whole other side to this book that nobody's really spoken about too much because it's typically hidden. And I think it's actually far more sinister and damaging to our kids. And that is that it is laced with the language of neo-Marxist identity politics. One of the ways in which social activists change society is by changing the language and casually embedding assumptions into the narratives using phrases and words that all of a sudden pop out of nowhere. So that stuff that was once unusual or an exception to the rule is now treated as an assumed truth or reality or norm. For example, 
Homosexuality is something many people in society view as perfectly normal. Gay people exist, same-sex attraction is real, and we should in no way be discriminating against, discriminating against gay people. Same with trans people. But these things are not the norm in the statistical sense. So let me be very clear, I'm talking statistically. So if you were writing a book for teenagers about gay and trans people, you might say some people are gay or trans, or even a minority of people may experience same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. It's not wrong or an illness, but it's also not something most people experience or have to deal with. So if you don't have those feelings, don't worry about it. But this book has been accused of grooming kids. Now, I'm not sure I'd go that far in my criticism of it, but I would go so far as to say that this book heavily promotes modern left-wing gender ideology in its language. And in the amount of attention and space that it allocates to LGBTQ sex issues versus heterosexual issues. It doesn't refer to men and women, but to penis owners and vagina owners. It talks about boy-girl sex as if it's just one option of many for everyone, and girl-girl and boy-boy sex as if there's nothing particularly remarkable about that. And it talks about quite unusual sex acts as if they're everyday things that everyone is doing, which could make a young person feel uncomfortable for having quite natural aversions to the idea of putting certain body parts in or around certain other body parts, not really designed for such activity. I mean, if an adult chooses to do that, fine. Uh, but for a young person trying to understand what sex is at a very young age, what is normal, am I normal, is there something wrong with me if I don't like that stuff, I don't want to do that, um, you know, sure, the book pays lip service to virginity and abstinence and, and sex being connected to intimacy and love and, and not having to do things that you don't want to do with little quotes from kids about that. But those quotes are really outnumbered by the dozens of quotes that enthusiastically promote a very different transactional and mechanical view of sex. Now, if you agree with me, I've got bad news for you. Once again, we do not seem to be in the mainstream. We share this country with people who think very, very differently to us, and we somehow have to all get along. One argument in favor of the book I agree with a little bit, although it's not much of an argument, is that with the ready availability of graphic and quite perverse pornography at the click of a switch for kids these days, that a book like this, dealing with all this stuff, is a necessary evil. Perhaps. But the place we're all falling down then, as adults in our society and the right parenting of our kids, is the appropriate policing of pornography. We should fix that problem so we don't need a book like this and we can protect the innocence of our young. Because right now, I think we're failing them. I also didn't want to say too much about the voice this week, but there's no avoiding it, sadly. And as if our country doesn't have real problems that it should be focusing on instead. <clears throat> there are three demands of this Uluru statement from the heart. Voice, treaty, and truth-telling. You may recall last week, the Prime Minister said, that, said this on, uh, on Sydney Radio 2GB's Ben Fordham show about the voice having nothing to do with treaty. As part of the Uluru statement, we have a voice, we have treaty, we have truth-telling. As part of a treaty, won't there be compensation? If there is, I mean, that's not totally unexpected. This isn't about a treaty, Ben. But there are three parts of the Uluru is, Statement. Yeah, and this is not... So you're talking about the This is not about a treaty. But as part of treaty, which we this guess is, will be a following step... This is not about a do treaty. Do you foresee that compensation would be This paid? is not about a treaty. This isn't about that. This is not about a treaty, folks. It isn't about that. Although... Former Senator David Lanhelm shared on Twitter this week a few of the Prime Minister's own tweets and comments. April 2021. Labor is committed to the statement from the heart in full. Voice, treaty, truth. February 2020. Voice, truth, treaty. Whole, proud, reconciled. That's the future I want for Australia. May 2021. Labor remains committed to the Uluru Statement in full, a voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution, a national process for treaty making with first Australians, and after centuries of conflict, truth telling to fully understand our history. August 2021, and we need a government that will deliver the Uluru Statement in full, voice, treaty and truth. 
I don't know about you, but every day I get more and more confused about the voice. This about is the voice, not about a treaty. But it's part of treaty, which we this guess is, will be a following step. This is not about a Do treaty. Do you foresee that compensation would be This paid? is not about a treaty. This isn't about that. Clear as a bell. But we have to be very careful what we say about the voice. Because to suggest anything that might be technically incorrect is to incite the gods of censorship, the Ministry of Truth. Those people who remind us every single day of the hell that awaits us as we move towards more and more suppression of diversity of opinion and free speech in Australia. There's no attack on free speech, the left tell us, as they continue to slowly chip, chip, chip away at free speech. Nothing to see here, folks. I've got a new rule. If the left say the right are claiming that we're doing X, Y, Z, but it's just not true, you can bet that they're doing exactly the thing that they're saying that they're not doing. Which makes life very confusing and a bit of a headache for us all. RMIT, the old tech college in Melbourne that got its big boy pants a couple of decades ago and now calls itself a university, teaches journalism. It's not ranked very highly. EduRank puts it 12th on its chart of journalism schools in Australia. And since there are almost no journalism jobs in Australia, it's probably a good idea to steer your kids into something else. But anyway, RMIT has appointed themselves, we're from RMIT and we're here to help, the Ministry of Truth with their lovely RMIT fact check service. Sadly, it seems to several observers that it has a strange tendency to quite often find opinions of media commentators on the left to be factual, while the opinions of media commentators on the right are considered misinformation or disinformation. And this is why you don't mess with free speech. And we must never let one group declare itself fact checkers. In fact, in an almost comical attempt to make themselves sound more scientific and official, RMIT called their little fact checking outfit a fact lab. It's a laboratory of truth. I wonder if they all wear, you know, lab coats and have test tubes with potions of truth in them. Now, nobody would care less about RMIT's little fact-checking kids, except that they get paid by Facebook. And that is where the censorship problem for you and me kicks in. When Facebook gets a fact-check on a post from RMIT, it pays them. Then, it's coding scurries about making sure that you can't see the post anymore, cranking up all the algorithms to shut down that particular misinformation or wrong think, as George Orwell called it in 1984. This is, of course, as all Big Brother initiatives are, designed to keep you safe and to protect you from hurt feelings and having to think too hard for yourself. We can think for ourselves, thank you. Well, this week, RMIT, without contacting us or even responding to us after we contacted them, decided to fact-check the other side. Now, look, this is the most attention that anyone's ever paid to us. It's out, outside you, our, our loyal small fan base that we adore, so we were quite flattered, actually. Until we, real, <laughs> excuse me, until we realized that it would have an effect on our Facebook reach and was part of the whole big tech ecosystem designed to promote progressive left-wing ideas and demote conservative and classical liberal ideas that's well now, now well known and well proven by congressional investigations in America and the whole Twitter files fiasco. So here's what writers Renee Davidson and Quinn Lee Dong said about our show. Quote, ahead of the referendum, no supporters are rehashing misinformation about the proposed voice being a third chamber of parliament. This time falsely claiming that it amounts to a special chamber but experts say The Voice will not be a chamber at all. In the video, Damien Curry misleadingly claims the proposed voice constitutes a special chamber. He claims that in the upcoming referendum, they are asking you to vote yes to a special chamber with special access and rights of consideration and input over laws that affect everyone, not just them. It's all laws because all laws affect Aboriginal people. Misleading, ouch, that hurt my feelings. I might need one of those uh, safe spaces and some university counselling. But seriously, for a journalist, that is a, a serious reputational slur, and I don't really take kindly to being told I'm misleading people deliberately. But apparently, Renee and Quinn Lee have special powers to read my mind and determine my intentions. 
They argue it's misleading to call the voice a special chamber because that implies it has the powers of a chamber of parliament that can veto legislation like the Senate or introduce legislation like the House of Representatives. They don't like the no campaigners calling it a third chamber of parliament, which I might point out I didn't do. I simply called it a special chamber. I mean, I assume these people are going to be elected or appointed by some process for the voice. I assume they're going to have a room at Parliament House that they sit in, some sort of chambers. And let's face it, it is kind of special because of all the other things that I pointed out, that they will have special access and rights of consideration and input over laws, won't they? I mean, isn't this what it's for? I mean, we know it's not a third chamber of Parliament in the technical formal sense. I mean, forgive me, but the whole voice thing is clear as mud, which is why anyone who thinks voting yes is a good idea has got rocks in their head, and more and more people are realising this every day. And I take exception to being accused of misleading people by saying it's a special chamber of sorts, although since these mind-reading kids have decided that I'm using the term special chamber to deliberately mislead you, then it must be true, and so I apologise. Um, I also want to be clear, I didn't mean to mislead you. Now, I know RMIT is only the 12th ranked journalism school in Australia, but in my day, we were taught to call people and check stuff before we accused them of deliberate professional misconduct. You know, get the other side of the story. It's obviously a lesson that's stuck with me, hence this show. Not only did the truth scientists in the fact lab not contact us, they didn't respond when we contacted them. Great journalism training at RMIT, folks. Keep up that number 12 ranking. The article then went on to quote Professor George Williams of my alma mater, the University of New South Wales. Renee and Quinn Lee describe Professor Williams as a leading constitutional expert. They don't describe him as a pro-voice campaigner who wrote a book about the voice, which is kind of funny because he did, which is kind of weird fact to leave out, right, in any article about, you know, the voice. It's almost like they might be misleading by omission. But surely not. I mean, they're the independent fact checkers. But anyway, the good professor was quick to point out that, quote, there was no suggestion that the voice would have any of the powers or responsibilities of the existing two chambers in Australia's parliament. Yep, that's technically correct. The voice will not be a special chamber of parliament, Professor Williams said in an email. Again, correct. That is a fact. In fact, it will not be a special chamber at all. Hmm, not a fact, an opinion, to which the professor is completely entitled, as I am to mine, and you are entitled to hear both of our opinions and make up your own opinion about it all. That is how free speech in a liberal democracy works, folks. Something these self-appointed arbiters of the truth seem to have a lot of trouble understanding. Thanks, Facebook. You can drop the censorship now, especially since we provide you so much free, high-quality content. Ta. George Williams goes on to say that the constitutional amendment makes it clear that the voice can make representations on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It would not empower the voice to make representations on other matters, such as laws and policies that do not affect Indigenous Australians. Now, the point of view posed by so many on the no side of the debate so many times is that all laws affect Indigenous Australians because they are Australians, aren't they? So if true, then the voice can make representations on all laws. But that's that weird thing that the left don't do when they debate called logic. So this is the obvious next question that a good journalist would ask the professor if they were unbiased and trying to get to the facts of the matter. So of course, Renee and Quinn Lee asked that question next. Just kidding, of course they didn't. If only we at the other side were good journalists and commentators who admitted we have a political bias and we present the news through that lens openly and transparently and made an effort every now and again to challenge our own biases and check ourselves by consulting experts and constitutional experts of our own. Oh wait, we are transparent about this show not being neutral. We don't pretend to be neutral. We let everyone know that we're classical liberal centre-right in our worldview. And we do check ourselves against the experts regularly. And we did speak to our own constitutional expert, like Professor James Allen of the esteemed Queensland University Law School. So what does he think about the 
legislative powers of the voice. The actual right. wording that's been proposed is that this uh, voice body, nobody knows how it's going to be chosen. Not, that's, you know, you get the details later. Uh, it will, and the wording is may make representations to, to Parliament and the executive on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Islander straight peoples. So may make representations. Uh, there's lots of scope for the High Court to turn that into a constitutional right to be consulted. Uh, not just parliament, but every executive decision. So that's every bureaucratic body. Uh, you can imagine the rent right. seeking that's going to happen. You can imagine the sort of sclerotic ability. Uh, my guess, and you know, John O'Sullivan had a law that said every body in the world that's not explicitly right wing over time becomes left wing. Uh, the activist ca class will capture this body. And I think one of the reasons Labour's not too worried about this is it's a bit like the Senate. And if you want to be a big spending government, just spend like crazy. You never have a problem getting through the Senate because no. these little independents just go, oh, yeah, more money for... If you want to cut back on the budget and, and do something really restrained, it's very difficult to get that through the Senate. Well, it's going to be like that on steroids with this voice body. Uh, it, it's sort of baseline set of views will be sort of right there with the Green Party. And so when Labour gets in, they won't really have too much problem getting their more spending, more identity politics laws through the, you know, the, they'll line up with the voice body. Anything that a, a Conservative Party wants to do, well, the voice body isn't going to like it. Now, they don't have a veto, but they, you know, they can slow things down considerably. And who knows the extent to which the High Court will... Uh, take this may make representations, turn it into a constitutional right to be consulted, how long do they have to be consulted? And you can imagine how sclerotic this is going to become. Now people are going to say to you, oh you're, you're just a you know, right wing nut job racist, they'll throw every, every nasty phrase they can and they'll say oh you know you're just you're just picking on minute details and these minute details are going to be amplified, they're saying they're going to be amplified in a way that we can't predict they're going to be amplified. We can't okay. predict. So yep. That's Professor James Allen, constitutional law expert from the University of Queensland with some very important reality checks on what the voice actually means. So here's my advice to the powers that be at RMIT University, which while it may be ranked 12th in Australia for journalism, has an overall university ranking of 25th. Oh well, can do better. If you're going to drag the reputation of your university through the mud by running a left-wing news site, have the decency to label it a left-wing news site and the integrity to be honest about your bias and don't call it a fact-checking service. Fact-check sites generally are really just becoming a joke. Some are run by undergrad journalism students around the world with inadequate experience or supervision who cannot identify the difference between an opinion, like a special chamber, and a fact, is a third chamber of parliament. Outfits like this RMIT Fact Lab, in my humble professional experience of only 35 years in media and communications, certainly prove that the training provided by our universities these days could be a lot better. And the fact that we all need to be highly wary of using fact checkers to censor, like Facebook does, or empowering anyone as a ministry of truth. And just to be clear for you, Renee and Quinley, that was a metaphor. In April, we talked on the show about excess deaths. The Bureau of Statistics had just released the complete year's mortality data for 2022. Slightly more than 190,000 people died in 2022, which is just over 25,000 or 15.3% more than the historical average. That's more excess death than at any time since World War II. You'd think the media would be screaming about it. It says the jump in deaths from COVID in 2022 was significantly above 2020, and 2021. 10,000 deaths were recorded as being due to COVID and 3,000 as being with COVID. So there were 10,000 COVID deaths. It was the number one cause of death in January and July 2022 when we had the two big Omicron waves. But what about the other 15,000 excess deaths? Well, there were about a thousand more heart disease deaths than usual and a jump in deaths from chronic heart disease. That's the kind of heart disease that isn't a sudden heart attack but the result of a longer running heart condition. Usually acute and chronic deaths are roughly the same, but the Bureau of Statistics says that in 2022, chronic heart disease was 25% higher than acute heart disease. 
Cancer deaths were up about 2,500 on 2019. Dementia was up a lot from around 15 to 17,000. The flu was down, so it wasn't that. And cerebrovascular diseases, strokes and aneurysms and things like that were also not higher. Add all the major death causes up, and we're not quite at the 5,000 mark, which leaves a good 10,000 out of the 25,000 still completely unexplained. Now, the Bureau of Statistics just crunches the numbers. They leave it to the experts to do the analysis, which is fair enough. That's what the government is doing to try to, to find out, sorry, but what is the government doing to try to find out the cause? I mean, given the billions that we spend on COVID and the massive debt that we racked up and the unprecedented infringements of our civil liberties we endured, surely this is a crisis worthy of serious investigation. Well, no. Sorry, there was a motion in the Senate in March, sponsored by United Australia Party Senator Ralph Babette, to hold an inquiry. The motion was, of course, immediately voted down by crossbench senators because, well, you can't possibly let someone from one of those parties be taken seriously. And the senators on the crossbench are mainly Greens, remember, and they will reflexively balk at anything suggested by a Conservative politician. Queensland Liberal National Party Senator Gerard Rennick spoke in support of the motion, insisting Australians deserve an inquiry. And as this excess death controversy continues, it was Senator Rennick who spoke to YouTube COVID researcher Dr John Campbell's podcast last week for an update. But it was the 2021 data, not the 2022 data, that their discussion focused on. I'm just looking at this excess de deaths data from, from Australia here. And we see that the deaths in Australia started going up in May 2021, got higher in June, July, August, September, October, until in October there were 7,192 deaths. Now, this is in 2021. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Australia Vaccine Programme began in the February 2021. And COVID didn't really kick off in Australia until 2022. Um, two questions here, really. The first is, I expect the success deaths is, is front page news on all the newspapers and everyone's clamouring to work out why it is. And uh, the, the, the second is, what do we think is causing this? What are the possible range of factors? So first of all, is this making the news? Are, are, the, are the mainstream media all over this story? No, they're not. Uh, and they weren't over the story in 2021. You know, it doesn't matter whether Senator Rennick is right or wrong about the cause of excess deaths being the vaccine or not. He is 100% right about the fact that it's deeply concerning that our media haven't even bothered to give the story any attention or sought to find any answers. And it's equally troubling that our politicians, who don't seem the slightest bit interested in getting to the bottom of it. A lot of people said the excess deaths of 2022 were due to COVID, even though, as we just discussed, COVID seems to account for only half the 25,000 deaths. But as Senator Rennick points out, in 2021, you can't really put them down to COVID itself. And the reason why I think it's worth looking at 2021 uh, rather than 2022 is because COVID was in the community in 2022 and it's been very easy to conflate the excess deaths with COVID. Now, you know, I, I do think that some of the excess deaths were due to COVID. However, I don't think that the majority of the excess deaths were due to COVID. Uh, which is, and, and the reason why I say that is when I look at the 2021 data, the excess deaths did start to climb in May. Now, the vaccine program only really started to kick off in late March. Senator Rennick says he thinks there is a very strong temporal relationship between the vaccine rollout and the excess death spike. And what's interesting is, is that by the end of 2021, we had about an extra 9,000 deaths. So deaths jumped from uh, 162,000 to 171,000. Now, it's worth noting that in 2020, deaths were 164, six, no, 2019, deaths were 164,000. So the lockdowns reduced the death rate uh, by about 2,000 in 2020, um, and then it jumped about 9,000 in 2021. So we can't put the excess deaths down to the lockdowns and delayed doctor reactions and things like that. Maybe a part of the climb in excess deaths, but not all of it. Uh, and what's interesting is, too, is in that, that increase of 9,000, that happened from April, May onwards, that it started to spike mm. and it wasn't in the first four months. So if that was extrapolated for the whole year, that would work out at about 12,000 extra deaths or almost a jump of 10% in that year, despite the fact there was no, next to no COVID in the community. Oh, dear. Again, the big question is why such radio silence from our media 
and political class. I mean, imagine 10,000 people have been killed in a terrorist attack. This would be like massive news around the world. Why isn't this being reported in Australia? Well, well I mean, uh, that's, that's the $64 million question, John. And, you know, I can only speculate as to the answer why, but I suspect it doesn't suit uh, the government or, or the media. Mm. Uh, or, or the health authorities uh, in the private sector, big pharma and things like that, to actually investigate further. Because I can't see that there's any other reason other than the rollout of the COVID vaccines. Now, I'm not saying it's responsible for every excess death. I do think that, um, you know, the lockdowns may have had some response to it. Uh, in 2021, there were about 1,300 deaths from COVID. In 2020, there were about 980. So, COVID deaths did increase by about 300, but yet again, a long way short of the extra 10,000 in excess deaths. And what's also very interesting about these numbers is that the largest increase in the death rate was in Western Australia and Queensland, the two states where there were no lockdowns and there was no COVID or you know, very few cases of COVID. And if they were there, they were in people in quarantine. So yet again... You know, the, the data would indicate that it was a result of the vaccine rollout rather than COVID itself. You would think that the temporal correlation and the geographic argument would be enough to have the authorities scrambling for answers, wouldn't you? But Senator Rennick says there's a third factor in all of this, the huge spike in the number of adverse events reported. Now, you'd expect with a big rollout of, to millions of people of a vaccine that there would be a big spike in adverse events. But it's not just the raw numbers that went up, it's the rate of adverse events. The injury rate was 264 per 100,000 doses versus a normal rollout of a vaccine at around 11 per 100,000 doses. That's 24 times the normal vaccine injury rates. Senator Rennick also speculated that the number of adverse events actually properly reported was significantly less than reality. What percentage of those overall adverse events that occurred would you imagine actually got through into the report? Are people good at reporting in Australia? Because in the UK, it's actually quite a low percentage. Well, yet again, that, that's something that we don't know of. Um, I, I suspect it's a very low percentage, um, but I, I can't be sure. I can only speculate. Now, I, I uh, have a friend who's a cardiologist here in Queensland. He submitted three myocarditis reports to Queensland Health, and they sent them back to him saying the patients must go back to their GP and get the GP to lodge the myocarditis reports on behalf of the patient, not the cardiologist. So... Uh, that, that would indicate that the Queensland Health Department at the very least were doing their best to downplay or not report uh, vaccine injuries. And I've had a number of antidotal stories whereby people who had a vaccine injury, when they, you know, or, or, you know, when they either went to the hospital or saw their GP, that they were told verbally that their injury was caused by the vaccine, yet they would not write it down, nor the doctor at the GP clinic, nor, nor the nurse or whoever it was at the registration desk would write down it's a vaccine injury. And in many cases, they wouldn't necessarily hand out the, 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 the injury report from the hospital. The hospital wouldn't hand that over to the particular patient. We practically wrecked our country's economy and its conventions of liberty and human rights to avoid COVID deaths. But we may have thousands of excess deaths we can't explain on our hands here, and nobody gives a rats. It's insane. And we call Senator Gerard Rennick the crazy one. Is that, is that how it works now? Our politician and media class decide, oh, we're not gonna to touch that because we're too scared of being called right-wing nutjobs or we're too scared of being called anti-vaxxers or crazy conspiracy theorists. They're all cowardly. They're all terrified of the woke left. It is absolutely insane. Now, while the excess deaths in Australia are high, we're not the only place with this phenomena occurring. This week, Dr. Campbell looked at other countries. This is Dr. Vibeka Manneke reporting on the excess deaths in uh, Denmark. And there's no question this is a, a global phenomena at the moment. Let's just listen briefly to uh, Mr. Andrew Bridgen, who's a member of parliament in the United Kingdom, literally about a 30 second clip. Uh, it's, it's a very regrettable state of affairs. But a, as you know, I mean, coming back to the, to the issue of, of vaccine harms, it's not just vaccine harms, we can't even have a debate in the mother of all parliaments about excess deaths. 
We can't have a debate about the excess. Last week's figures were 2,540, according to the ONS excess deaths. That's 22.1% above the rolling five-year average. And in the mother of all parliaments, we can't have a debate about it. Those are issues that affect every community in every constituency. And there's only me asking for the debate. There's something gone seriously wrong in our democracy. And of course, this is what is bemusing about this, the great silence from around the world. We're not hearing about it from politicians. We're not hearing about it from uh, election candidates, with the possible exception of Robert Kennedy, actually. But basically, this is a bit of a silence. Dr. John Campbell on YouTube. Now, I know Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a bit of a hero for a lot of people and is running to be the Democratic Party's presidential nominee in the United States, but I've got to admit, I'm not a huge fan. This show is about getting to the truth of the matter as much as we can, and that means sometimes we won't agree with the people that some of you might expect us to. RFK Jr. made an appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast recently, and I just want to draw your attention to a YouTube video from a channel run by some actual professors of virology called Beyond the Noise. They also have another podcast called TWIV, This Week in Virology. They've done virtually a minute-by-minute pull-apart of the claims that RFK Jr. makes in the Rogan interview in a, in a uh, recent couple of uh, debunking episodes of those podcasts. My favourite biochemistry expert in the world sent these to me. Here's a sample of them debunking RFK Jr.'s claim about mercury in vaccines in the form of thimerosal, which is a common vaccine ingredient. It's a preservative. This is Dr. Paul Offit, professor at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, co-inventor of a rotavirus vaccine, speaking with Vincent Raccinello, who's a professor of virology at Columbia University in New York. Another statement uh, made uh, is that by RFK Jr., thimerosal is horrendously toxic. Let's take that apart. Right, so thimerosal is an ethylmercury-containing preservative that has been in vaccines really since the 1940s. Um, it's a bacteriostatic agent. It's a gentle bacteriostatic agent. It's ethylmercury, not methylmercury, and therefore its half-life in the bloodstream is about seven days as compared to methylmercury, which certainly can be not toxic and has a half-life of closer to 70 days, so therefore can accumulate and therefore can do harm. I mean, mercury is in the Earth's crust. Um, it is. It, it comes to the surface via uh, rock erosion of volcanoes where it then uh, is taken up by bacteria and methylated. So now it's not inorganic mercury anymore. It's organic mercury and it can cross cell membranes and do harm. And there have been certainly um, industrial accidents in Iraq and in the Minamata Bay in Japan, which have been associated with a lot of harm. I mean, can methylmercury be harmful? Yes. But the question of whether ethylmercury in vaccines can be harmful was easily studied. Easily. I mean, we as, as more and more vaccines were being put on the schedule and, and some of them had ethylmercury as a preservative, that worried people. It did. And, and so because I was on the ACIP Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices at the CDC back in the late early 2000s when this all came to a head. And so, so what the CDC did, and I think in retrospect, it wasn't a great idea, was they just basically put a gun to the head of pharmaceutical companies and said, take thimerosal out of vaccines given to young children which basically moved things from multi-dose files to single-dose files, made them a lot more expensive and no more safe. Because some states removed thimerosal in childhood vaccines and others didn't, it was easy to compare the effects in studies. There was no difference. At the time that, that, uh, that Kennedy first got involved in this, which was an article he wrote in Rolling Stone called Deadly Immunity, which was 2005, there were already six studies done showing that this wasn't a problem. Now there's closer to a dozen studies that have been done. So, the, so, so it's a scientific question. It can be answered in a scientific venue, and it has been answered. Nonetheless, he continues to push forward on this, assuming that, that enough people aren't either aren't reading those articles or aren't listening to public health advocates. Did, did Rogan push him back on that? No, we can't. Uh, I mean, I he can't. They mercury is never going to sound good. I mean, it's it's not like there's a national center for the appreciation of heavy metal standing up in defense of mercury. <laughs> so it's very easy to make mercury sound bad. Um, and and people would argue, well, I mean, any quantity is bad, right? I mean, why use mm. any quantity? Well, the fact is, there's no avoiding mercury. I, if you live on this planet, you're going to be exposed to mercury. Okay, so mercury is not the culprit. Mercury is everywhere now. 
Unfortunately, this is not the weirdest thing that RFK Jr. has said about vaccines and viruses. This is. This is this one really got me. He said the 1918 flu pandemic was caused by the vaccine. How can that be, Paul? <laughs> which would make far more sense if there actually was an influenza vaccine in 1918. That, that flu vaccine, which was the first vaccine, was made by Thomas Francis and co-workers in the late 1940s. So got me. We didn't even have influenza virus isolated in 1918. That didn't happen until, well, until 2000s for the 1918 isolate, right? Right. right. There were only two, two vaccines available in 1918. The smallpox vaccine, which was late 1700s, the rabies vaccine was late 1800s. That was pretty much it at that point. Yet people will listen, his 11 million subscribers, a good fraction of them, will not know any of this and say, oh, yeah, that's that must be true because uh, RFK Jr. is saying it. This is the problem, and that's why we have to counter everything he says because this is this is a, a high-profile thing here. He's running for president. That's Professor Vincent Racaniello of Columbia University and Professor Paul Offit from Philadelphia Children's Hospital on the Beyond the Noise podcast, Episode 7, if you want to check it out. Now, RFK Jr.'s claims may be wrong, but something is up with these excess deaths, so work needs to be done. But we ordinary people have somehow got to wade between the do-nothing politicians and bureaucrats, the media who won't push them for answers, scientists who say that they're not going to stoop so low as to engage with RFK Jr., and people like RFK Jr. who just muddy the waters and confuse people with, I'm sorry, but quite outrageous claims. I know he's popular among conservatives right now, but he shouldn't be. He's not going to save the Democrats, and he's a lawyer, not a scientist. Professor Offit did speak to RFK Jr. once, 20 years ago. That brings us to your other post, my conversation with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., which you had 20 years ago. And tell us about that. Right, so he called me um, about 20 years ago and, and said that he had uh, 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 people who had come to him, mothers who had come to him, that were concerned about um, thimerosal at the level containing vaccines. Could I help him out with that? Could I talk to him about that? And I, I this was 20 years ago, but my recollection was that that conversation went really well. Um, I remember coming home that night and telling my wife that I think it went really well. And, and you know, I had certainly had an enormous amount of respect for his father, um, who I thought was a civil rights icon and, and you know, was a brave man. Um, but um, then I found out, you know, like about a year later, he published an article in Rolling Stone called Deadly Immunity, and he sandbagged me. He just said I was in the pocket of industry, that I had worked a deal with Merck to make $186 million, which certainly news to me and news to my wife. Um, you know, just... Um, I didn't work any deal with Merck. First of all, I'm the intellectual property of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. They own any patent that we had regarding vaccines, they owned. So therefore, they owned me. If there were any deals that would be done, they were doing them. Um, so it's just, just completely made up. But, but what happened with that was by labeling me as a shill, labeling me as someone who was just going to uh, line my pockets at the expense of children's health, that really put me in harm's way. You know, I got a lot of hate mail. I got three legitimate death threats. My children were threatened. I was physically uh, threatened once outside of uh, CDC when you had to walk through a group of protesters because he saw me as evil or painted me as evil. Yeah, and that perception of you continues to this day. I have the last episode of Beyond the Noise. Someone wrote under it, you're just an industry shill. So you, it's it's something he started and it's going to be hard for you to, to get away f from, even He's though it isn't true. Because that's what he has to do. He doesn't have the data, right? If the law's on your side, argue the law. Facts are on your side, off, argue the facts. If neither are on your fact on your side, then shoot the messenger. So that's what he does. Yeah. He shoots the messenger because he doesn't have the facts. I mean, when reporters call me and say, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. just said this about you, my response is usually, I'm not his problem. The science that consistently shows he's wrong is his problem. That's who he should be going up against, and he can't. That's Professor Paul Offit, inventor of a rotavirus vaccine on the Beyond the Noise podcast. Professor Offit, wrongly, I think, says there's no point debating RFK Jr. It's not for RFK Jr. we want to see you debate him. It's for the rest of us. You need to debate him precisely because you are a scientist. You can't expect Joe Rogan or me or any journalist or interviewer to do that work for you. We don't have the expertise. One YouTube comment in response to that video summed it up nicely, I think. At Jay Ludo writes, it's a little frustrating 
Everyone who refutes RFK Jr. won't just sit down with him for a few hours and go through point by point. Instead, we get these separate discussions we have to try to piecemeal together. I'd be much more comfortable hearing both sides talk to one another rather than talk past one another. The big policy changes he wants to implement are far less dangerous than the criti his critics admit, which makes their criticism appear in bad faith. The regulatory capture of the FDA is a real thing, and if scientists were more willing to criticise and discuss it, there wouldn't be enough oxygen in the room for an RFK junior. Well said, Jay Ludo. <laughs>As always, on the other side, we welcome your polite disagreement. That's what this show is all about, civil disagreement, uh, and an honest attempt to get to the truth or the best possible opinion and put various points of view from the intelligent non-left side of politics and society. That's all we have time for this week. You have a fantastic week. This is The Other Side Australia, your weekly news and commentary summary show here on ADH-TV every weekend. We stream first on Friday night at 8pm and then up on demand for you anytime thereafter. And also remember our interview show, The Other Side Interviews, every Tuesday night on ADH. We stream after 6pm, not always spot on 6pm, but somewhere just after 6. And then all our shows are on demand for you to watch anytime. Our interview with Avi Yemeni this week is one not to be missed. And next week, I'll be speaking with Professor Nigel Bigar from Oxford University about Emancipation Day and the end to slavery. And if you're in Brisbane this Tuesday, August 1, and want to join us for that breakfast event, search up the Australian Institute for Progress and grab your tickets. Bye for now.